be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome back to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the seventh overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 6, often known, depending where you look, as Season 1, Episode 7, Episode 7, or what the German regionalization team named Realization Time. I'm your host, John. In Episode 6, Cooper lets Audrey down in the classiest way possible, then enlists the Bookhouse Boys to invest Jock at One-Eyed Jacks while Doc Hayward and Harry try to get Waldo to talk. Maddie, James, and Donna listen to one of Laura's therapy tapes, and Audrey smokes through her boss Emery's meeting with Jenny, then steals a unicorn and gets the number for Blackie O'Reilly from Jenny. Cooper and Harry have a present of a cup of coffee at the Double R. Nadine's shut down at the patent office. Catherine doesn't sign a life insurance policy. And Audrey keeps missing Cooper, so she goes to One-Eyed Jack's on her own. Leo kills Waldo instead of Bobby. Cooper and Ed get disguised to meet Blackie. And Cooper finally meets Jacques, while Audrey gets a new job by tying a cherry stem. All this while, Maddie impersonates Laura so James and Donna can break into Jacoby's office for Laura's missing tape. And a secret someone watches Maddie from the trees. So... After watching all of Twin Peaks from 1990 and 91 and all of Twin Peaks from 2017, we're going to look at how we see things differently. And we're going to see what questions we're left with now. So the first one will be, what boundaries do the investigations cross? And that means all of them, all the kinds of boundaries. How do the investigations reveal what characters want and need? And how is Laura Palmer's presence invoked? Okay, to start with, we are going to go back into the history of what it was like during the production of this episode. Episode 6 was the second episode written by Harley Payton and the first directed by Caleb Deschanel. Now, at this point, Peyton hadn't been made a producer yet. That was between seasons one and season two over the summer. Um, but Frost was so happy with the way episode three turned out, and they're writing them in sequential order, that the first thing Frost said to him is, great, come back and do number six. Now, according to Peyton from Essential Wrapped in Plastic by John Thorne, the network was, uh, that network being ABC, 
barely looked at the scripts in season one. And um, Peyton basically says that's what uh, that's what networks are supposed to do. That's their jobs. And um, he basically said they had no idea what to do with us. As far as the story structure in the artisan DVD commentaries, Peyton said Frost had had Twin Peaks inside his head. And he said it like this. He was the one person on set, every set needed this one person, that kept everyone on track, particularly with the first season. Now, I have some of Peyton's thoughts throughout this episode, but I'm going to move on to Caleb Deschanel. Now, Deschanel went to AFI at the same time as Lynch did. That's American Film Institute. And um, per his wife, Mary Jo Deschanel, um, she said the directors would give lectures at the old Greystone mansion and all was very casual. And it was, uh, you know, Terrence Malick was part of this and everybody, you know, it, it, it seemed like, you know, to be a fly in the wall, listening to those lectures would be very informative. Um, now, um, Deschanel and Lynch didn't really keep in touch, uh, uh, too, too deeply at this point, but, um, Deschanel had directed a lot of commercials, but no television. Um, how Deschanel got connected, besides you know his early days with Lynch, um, Mary Jo Deschanel got cast first, and um, so you know she was she was Eileen Hayward. So they all were able to go to the screening of the pilot, and um, you know uh, Caleb at the end of you know at, after the viewing, um, Caleb said, "David, it's great," and then uh, Lynch said. Oh, you want to direct one of them? <laughs> it was pretty much that simple. Um, so yeah, I I kind of wonder if it was the same screening that Peyton went to where he got the job from Mark Frost. Um, so like, did these two guys get the job at the same time? Who knows? But um, uh, Deschanel had this to say about the actual production of uh, Twin Peaks in the first season: getting it all done in the time allotted is the challenge. If you move the camera too much, you lose the subtext, and the subtext is the most important part of the show. Figuring out the fears of the characters is also important. So that kind of explains his his mentality about the about how he approached things. One thing that he knew for sure he wanted to do was he knew that the donuts were a very iconic part of the show at this point, and um, the the Waldo being over them and the blood dripping on the donuts. That was completely his idea. There's one particular scene where um, the camera starts on the Hayward piano and it pans over and you start to see Maddie and then you start to see Donna and then you see like everything but James's head for a while. And then he's revealed. Um, he has, he's uh, Deschanel said, it's cinematography in the sense that you show an image and then you're keeping the audience in the dark a little bit until you reveal what's going on. The whole show was very much like that. There was a lot of secrets and or there, <laughs> there were a lot of secrets as secrets are dangerous. And one of the big secrets was how Deschanel didn't know who killed Laura. So, I mean, he's the one who ended up filming. Uh, remember when Maddie walks down the stairs and it's the dark of the Palmer house. And then like from the living room, like Leland turns his head. So his face is in the light and it's very creepy and it's very, 
um, I mean, it's pretty disturbing, especially knowing what we know in the future. But uh, Deschanel had a good attitude about that. He basically said in the Mark Altman book, uh, Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes, he said, it's not really a problem. And he was saying this about the gag order, about, you know, keeping secrets in season two, but it really um, applies here. He says, sometimes you can find that you add things to the show without knowing anything that contributes to the mystery. And it makes it that much better. This is definitely one of those moments. Now, some context from 1990. Um, I can see why people wouldn't be quite so, um, you know, like, oh, uh, the the smoke would come out of the closet, blah, 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 about Audrey smoking during during the meeting between Emery and Jenny. Um, You know, it's like these days, there is no smoking. But... I saw a VHS video from one of my companies or the the company I work for their one of their meetings from I believe it was um it was somewhere between 88 and 91 when they filmed this and um I don't know why but you know it's like this boring meeting with like a bunch of people around a table except every single one of them was smoking so the fact that there might be fresh smell of Emery's brand of cigarette because that's what Audrey was smoking um, in the same office as Emery and Jenny. Um, I don't think that would be quite the um, quite the tip off that it would be today. Now, from an acting standpoint, um, Sherilyn Fenn was told by Deschanel to play the closet scene so that Audrey doesn't have to worry about being discovered, that it can never happen and that she just understands that you know, like she'll never be caught. So between the fact that, um, you know, there's like this sort of dreamy quality, like maybe, (laughs) maybe Audrey's being a strong sender in this moment, who knows? Um, but between that and the culture of the day, it totally makes sense that, um, that can happen the way it did. And another thing about that scene in particular, I was listening to the lodgers podcast and um, they were talking, uh, they had a guest on who was asking, like, were the viewers supposed to have noticed the connections to Blue Velvet? And, um, I mean, the the answer is not really. Um, you know, it's like there's, at, at that point, I mean, not even, you know, Lynch's work was not really that well known at the time. I mean, the the Mark Altman book I just mentioned that was published in December of 1990. Um, it, I don't even think it mentions Eraserhead by name. I mean, it Eraserhead didn't gather, gather the reputation it did until sometime between Fire Walk With Me and uh, Lost Highway. So I don't think the common person, you know, it's like um, Elephant Man and Blue Velvet were talked about. I think Elephant Man was the one that everybody really knew about more than anything. And that um, Blue Velvet was like this three-year-old curiosity of like, you know, like, ooh, I hear that one's spicy or tawdry or, you know, like whatever the word is. Um, so like the the common people weren't really meant to see it that way. But um, it, it's more like the creators doing it. So, I mean, I think that Deschanel was referencing Blue Velvet there, but, you know, it was the same thing as like the insurance guy talking to Catherine this episode, Walter Neff, who's the same name as Fred McMurray's character from uh, Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity. 
you know, things like that. And uh, Waldo, the bird from uh, Waldo Lidecker, who, um, okay, you see how they split the name up there with the, with the vet, um, Bob Lidecker. Um, but, you know, that's from, that's a character from Preminger's Laura from 1944. So, uh, yeah, it's like they throw in references to things and they honestly don't care if anybody catches them. That said, it did end up becoming a nice doubling of Lynch's work. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, there, there's no wonder why now everybody associates Lynch's film work with Twin Peaks. Anyway, the end result for this episode is that um, it aired on May 17th, 1990. It's the last time it aired on a Thursday for a long time, because next week they'll put it on Wednesdays for sweeps purposes. And the ratings are 15.7 million viewers, which is down a lot from the week before 17.3. But between the um, the two weeks before holding out at about 17, um, the drop might have changed things about where they placed it on the schedule. But um, ABC basically did renew it this exact week. Um, they announced that the season two would be happening and that it would be happening on Saturdays. So I'm kind of wondering if this dip made the on Saturdays part, or if they already had it kind of figured out that they weren't sure what to do with this wild card show. Anyway, this night it aired after Father Dowling Mysteries and against the Falcon Crest finale, and it ended up beating the Falcon Crest finale in the ratings. So, per usual, we're going to look into Lynch's final words from, you know, final words from 1993, from the Lynch lady, (laughs) from the log lady intros that aired on the Bravo Network during its first run of syndication. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, yet there are those who open many eyes. Eyes are the mirror of the soul, someone has said. So we look closely at the eyes to see the nature of the soul. Sometimes, when we see the eyes, those horrible times when we see the eyes, eyes that have no soul, then we know a darkness. Then we wonder, where is the beauty? There is none, if the eyes are soulless. So the first thing this makes me think of is the, um, the whited out eyes of the doppelgangers from um, from episode 29 in the Red Room sequence. Is there only darkness in those eyes? Um, there's a lack of seeing, like they can't see through just the white because, um, you know, drink full and descend, this is, you know, the horse is the white of the eyes, all that, all that looking away metaphor that will will be a little bit more codified as we go. I think in this case, it relates more to the voyeurism of this episode. You know, like the the scary presence watching Maddie as Laura at the gazebo. You know, the breathing heavy person at the very end of the episode. I kind of feel like that's the darkness that was watching. And um, it's almost like, you know, what eyes do we see through is kind of what... um, what Margaret's words are implying here. Um, and. you know, whose eyes are we seeing through at the very end of this episode? Likely it's Bob's or, you know, at at the minimum it's Leland's, but it applies to a whole lot more too. I mean, Leo is watching Shelly and Bobby 
and Waldo later through binoculars. And uh, <laughs> that makes me think of uh, of Jerry Horn in um, in season three, where he's like, bad binoculars. So, like, they're no good. <laughs> um, you know, Audrey is watching from the closets and like she's literally um, she's literally in a dark place and she's heading into a metaphorically dark place going to one eye jacks. Um, then there's, um, the camera angle watching the kids, um, uh, James, Don and Maddie listening to Laura's tape. You know, there's one point where it backs out so far into the, into the Hayward's living room that it's the shot where Bob walks from behind the scene, you know, all the way over the couch. Um, you know, it's like there, there's this, um, there's this implication with the camera angle that, um, you know, there's somebody being a voyeur even for them, um, even if it's just implying that they are being a voyeur into Laura's words, you know, watching people's secrets. It's it's this, you know, the, this untoward uh, behavior, and it ends up leading to truth um, in this show usually, but it only gets to the truth by going through the darkness and the transgressive behaviors that everybody does to get to the truth. But yeah, I think Lynch was mostly intending that, you know, if, if we could see the eyes of the person watching Maddie, it would be, it would be eyes that have no soul. Okay. So next we're going to be talking about the scenes of the episode a little more specifically. But before that, we're going to hear some words from our fellow podcast at Ruminations Radio Network. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, welcome back. Now we are going to look at the scenes of this episode using the full context of the show from all the episodes in 1990 all the way through all the episodes in 2017, including books from time to time. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look into what boundaries do the investigations cross. So the first boundary that gets crossed that we're going to look into is going from public into secret you know during during the proper investigation into <clears throat> into um laura's murder you know they're investigating Jacques Renault, but then um it comes out that he works at one eye jacks which is over in canada and that means there's a border crossing and uh that's kind of a problem and uh, oh yeah the the border crossing itself is a different kind of boundary too so they can't actually go over there legally so instead of waiting for the process, Cooper enlists the Bookhouse Boys right then to quickly investigate Laura's murder across the state and national lines. We also get Audrey, who tries to actually talk to Cooper about the case. And, you know, it's like, I'm going to be your junior detective. You know, it's like he, he cuts it off and he cuts her off saying, you know, it's like, OK, great. You got a new job, but I don't have time. Uh, so, um, you know, she. She continues to try to get in touch with Cooper to tell him about her uh, secret, um, you know, her, her secret investigation into one eye jacks, but she never really catches him. 
So she has to do it on her own. So in, um, you know, by default, it ends up becoming a secret from Cooper too, even though it's accidental and it wouldn't be twin peaks without an inversion of that too. So there's also, there's also one particular one that's going from a secret to public and that's the arson plot. Um, you know, we, we get a, we get a fun little detail that Pete says he got his fish trophy back from Tim and Tom's taxidermy, which end up showing up in the, uh, in the access guide, uh, late in season two's run. Um, which is just, you know, a funny little coincidence. I mean, it's a funny little connection that doesn't have anything to do with this scene. Um, but Josie, um, she finally shows up at the Blue Pine Lodge. Uh, Harry is there and they finally get to talk about why she was at the motel uh, the, in episode four. And, um, you know, she, she takes a moment and then she figures out, you know what? Um, she actually does say that she was taking, uh, she was taking pictures of her conspirator, Ben, and uh, the person they're double crossing, uh, Catherine, at the motel. Now, it seems to me that what's actually happening is she's taking those pictures as proof to Harry because she said that um, he needed proof. But it's also just a frame, you know, to have proof that Ben and Catherine are together in things and they're probably the ones who burned the mill down. Um, so Ben playing both sides ends up allowing him to be guilty on both sides. And Josie knows this, and I think she's trying to get rid of anybody who could get her into trouble. Now, in this case, she is telling Harry for the first time, and she's telling, you know, everything except for her involvement, um, as far as the ruse that, um, you know, Ben isn't acting with Catherine. Um, but, um, you know, Harry believes her hook, line and sinker, of course, because he loves her. And that's what he says to Cooper, too, um, after Cooper calls him out and basically says, you know, it's like, how do you how much do you know about her? Like, you know, do you know her history? You know, how much of this do you know? Uh, basically, you know, how many of her secrets do you actually know, Harry? And, um, you know, Cooper just goes with it. You know, he just, you know, um, Harry's love is enough for him. So, um yeah, that that particular part drops. But, um, you know, like as far as Josie's intent here, um, and Leslie Lincoln-Gladder's on, on record a lot, basically saying that um, Josie did love Harry for real. Um, and um, she's like, Josie is basically saying, you know, it's like she's got her lawman who will ride in and save her out of all the machinations she's doing and all the things she's caught up in, but it's not going to work because like, even, even if it does work, you know, uh, Josie got the call that the mill was going to burn tonight from Ben, you know, Ben, Ben told her the plan is moving. Um, so basically stay out of town for a little while. Um, except who's right there next to her is Hank. So, you know, she's still, she's still tied into people who have things on her. So even though she's caught up in these secrets and she's trying to get out of the secrets, they are becoming more and more public. So Harry and Hank both know a little bit. We know that they know a little bit more this time of what Josie is thinking. So bringing up, bringing up the arson plan, that's another boundary that's happening in this episode. Um, the um, moving from legal to illegal. 
happens here. Okay, so the arson plan, it it goes from the theoretical conspiring that's been happening, um, and this time it's going into motion officially. I've talked about the state lines issue with the Bookhouse Boys and, um, you know, the kids, uh, J- James, Maddie, and Donna are listening to uh, Laura's tapes. So, like, that's um, that's kind of on the fence with the patient-client. Um, yeah, but, I mean, at least they found it in Laura's house. Um, but then they switch to breaking and entering into Jacoby's office. So, yeah, that's absolutely illegal. And then even Bobby goes into the illegal category by framing James with some <laughs> cocaine in his, his bike's gas tank. Um, you know, he starts out um, actually trying to comfort Shelly for a little bit when she is freaking out, and Madge and Amick is putting in an amazing acting performance. But, you know, then he goes into full-on Bobby mode, you know, talking in the third person, which kind of, you know, that, that gives me the impression of, like, nicknames again, where, like, he's on a negative frequency. He's talking about himself as himself, as a big title. Bobby's going to fix it. He's going he's gonna to fix Leo. He's going to fix James and everything. And, like, why would he bring up James right there with Shelly? <laughs> you know, this is obviously him stepping away from helping Shelly and doing his own thing. Except then, you know, he goes into the framing business, which uh, doesn't really um, work out nicely. But probably the biggest transition in, in terms of how long it's in the story, we get Audrey. I mean, she goes from being a Horns employee to becoming a hospitality girl at One-Eyed Jacks. Um, so yeah, at the beginning of the episode, Cooper lets her down in the classiest way possible, which, um, you know, she, um, <laughs> she put herself in a kind of a, a tricky position in Cooper's bed. And, um, you know, during this conversation, it's pretty apparent that she is able to be herself. You know, it's like she's, she's free to not keep secrets with, with Dale Cooper. Um, you know, it's like she wants to be the junior detective at, you know, at the end of the day, like when she's, um, when she's turned down for her, um, <laughs> for her proposition to Cooper, um, you know, it's like he, he basically, um, wants her to be this, this amazing woman who can kind of do her own thing. And, um, yeah, what, what that ends up, being like you know she um she feels like the most being herself is to be this detective you know she wants to uncover secrets you know the first thing she does in horns this time is she connives her way into um into the in, into uh emery's office where she like you know takes a cigarette and you know, starts smoking and looking through his things, and then she just goes into the closet when Emery's coming through with with Jenny. You know, she's just really happy to get the information. Um, you know, the the conversation, like she now knows what she wants to do next with her investigation. You know, she swipes the unicorn. Um, she she goes through the um the na- the book of names that Emery has, and then sees Ryan Pulaski with all those hearts. Um. And, um, 
you know, she makes that connection that it's Ronette's name. And then she, um, she sneakily gets the, um, the name of black or the, uh, the number for black Rose from Jenny using the unicorn. Now about Jenny, um, Harley Payton in the, um, in the artisan DVD commentaries, he talked about how, um, as writers, they meant to imply that the day player characters like Jenny, um, that they were all getting into some kind of trouble and danger and all were required to be imbued with quirks. So like, you're not just going to have a character walk into Twin Peaks and like be this like empty vessel that like has nothing to it and you don't care about them. It's like you want even, you know, the, the people, anybody who has a line is going to be a character where you can actually see that they're in trouble or able to get into trouble. Like, you know, that, that's, that's a nice touch for world building. Another world building detail um, in this, um, well, in the, the first horn scene with Audrey, you know, she's, uh, she's being kind of rude to one of the customers and, um, next to the customer is a cutout of Jade from invitation to love because, you know, at one point they were wondering if like, maybe they have the cast of invitation to love come to twin peaks on like some kind of junket. They, they do a lot of world building, you know, just in this one, you know, just in this one zone of the Horns department store. But as far as Audrey's behavior in these scenes, um, she's kind of digging into the dark territory again. You know, she's, um, she's going down this path that doesn't really lead too well. And she's again, I, what is this third episode in a row? She and Hank are mirroring each other. Um, you know, it's like he steals a lighter from the counter, just like Audrey steals a unicorn. Um, Hank gets Big Ed's name out of out of Shelly, you know, like, oh, all this help you did. And, uh, you know, thanks, Shelly, for all the help you gave Norma while I was in the while I was in prison. And, um, you know, and Pete and, and, you know, then she just says, oh, no, no, you mean you must mean Ed. And um, yeah, so he gets Big Ed's name out of out of Shelly. Just like um, Audrey goes up to Jenny and says, oh, um, you know, did you get one of these unicorns too? And it's a funny thing. I, uh, I lost Black Rose's number. And um, yeah, so they're both being sneaky in the same kind of way. And obviously we know that Hank doesn't mean it because later on we see um, Hank watching Josie get the call about the arson from, from Ben Horn. And then Audrey's path goes even a little more dark as she continues to miss Cooper. You know, it's like she, um, she calls on the, on the, on the great Northern phone, you know, it's like, has agent Cooper shown up yet? Um, you know, slips a note under Cooper's door, but does she wait for him? No, no. She just goes on and does it anyway. It's the same confidence that she had in Emery's closet that she's never going to get caught. You know, she has this confidence going straight to One-Eyed Jacks as well. And that confidence takes her straight to Blackie's office. You know, it takes her straight to deciding that tying a cherry stem would be the thing that could get her out of this mess of getting shipped all the way back to, uh, to Twin Peaks. And what does she do instead of that? Well, she, um, she signs a contract with, with Blackie. And that goes into another 
another thing with this episode. There's this boundary of going from the unofficial to official with signatures. Now, Audrey's is kind of a, um, a deal with the devil kind of thing with Blackie because, you know, we know that place is up to no good. And, um, you know, here she is getting in with it. And uh, Ben and Jerry are trying to take the Icelanders up to One-Eyed Jacks to sign the Ghostwood deal as quickly as possible. And there, there's a couple of weird things in the scene. I mean, I know it's just because writers are writing as quickly as possible and they forget all the details, like how, um, like how Ben Horn suggested when, um, when the Icelanders first showed up that maybe they should go to One-Eyed Jacks. Um, you know, he gets mad at Jerry here about, you know, it's like, how do they know about One-Eyed Jacks? Well, you know, you kind of told them, but you know, <laughs> that's not what Jerry says. He just says, I accept full responsibility because, you know, why call out his brother? Um, and later on, they're actually in a scene with Einar and, um, they're all eating ice cream together. And, um, uh, that's a, that's a funny little meta joke because Ben and Jerry's hadn't quite gone national yet, but they were a local chain that was big enough where the joke was to be had. Now this episode doesn't actually get the signature from the, um, from the Icelanders, but it gets them to the point where that is the next logical thing. So. Yeah, their um, their plan is coming together. The horns. I mean, one signature that doesn't, uh, another signature that doesn't happen, but by choice, not just because the scene ends, is when Catherine chooses not to sign the hurried life insurance document. Um, so um, Caleb Deschanel from the um, from the DVD commentaries, he he says that um both um Neff the lawyer and Catherine they're both speaking like they're being recorded and um it's interesting that Catherine the one who's like been planning all this arson with Ben you know it's like she realizes she's being double crossed and um instead of like falling into the trap of just signing it and then you know being a pawn she slows things down and she says think think which is um i mean it's what saves everybody from the darkness when the darkness is looming and um you know just because you're already in the dark doesn't mean that um you know slowing things down and you know being part of the moment um you know isn't going to help you it still will and i know audrey's signature it um it ends up just saving her bacon in the in the short term and it's a super hasty decision. You know, it's like she didn't even know she wanted to do that this morning. And um, I mean, she <laughs> she was with Cooper that morning, and um, you know, and then suddenly she's like signing signing her name to One Eye Jacks. And um, what does that actually make happen? You know, besides uh, saving herself in the short term, well, it makes it official that Audrey is basically now living Laura's life. You know, it's like she works at the perfume counter. She works at One-Eyed Jack's now, which I'm assuming she's connecting the dots that Laura was also there. But because she did it so quickly, she doesn't have backup. You know, nobody knows where she is, not even her dad, which doesn't really matter in this case because he wouldn't necessarily care. But that's part of the problem. You know, it's like just because she's doing the same things as Laura just because she's as quick thinking and, um, you know, we're in the same locations where Laura physically was 
before she was killed, it doesn't it doesn't exactly help Audrey figure out, you know, how Laura died because it wasn't through the one eye jacks thing. And um it also doesn't, you know, becoming becoming Laura in occupations doesn't bring along the adoration that came with um that came from Laura. You know, it's like all that stuff about um Laura, you know, men just like her and blah blah blah. It's like all this stuff that that came to Laura, like all the attention, it isn't here for Audrey because, you know, she does nobody does know where she is. You know, it's like um and um also like it's not gonna make her father love her and it's not gonna make anybody love her or give her all this attention you know it's like she's on her own being somebody else now the beginning of the episode actually starts with um you know that that cooper that cooper monologue to audrey that'll make every you know it's like if if you had to let somebody down that's the way to do it because you're you're verifying like what's great about a person but also putting an absolute line in the sand why this is a friend zone situation but in there is that thing about you know what i want and what i need are you know are are two separate things and um you know it's like that that is obviously played a little differently in i think it's part two of um of the 2017 twin peaks and um you know it's like i don't need i want okay ray you know <laughs> it's um it's an interesting inversion with a way to say like you know this is how the doppelganger is different than cooper and it's an exact inversion so cooper is you know doppel cooper chooses wants obviously i mean he he makes the allegiance like plain as day but then in here Cooper is choosing needs. You know, it's like he'll cross lines to get to one-eyed jacks, but Cooper doesn't cross all the lines. He only crosses the ones he thinks he needs to to get his answers. You know, he says, when a man joins the Bureau, he takes an oath to uphold certain values. And, um, you know, there, it's, it's kind of like how Bobby was talking about, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, do you take drugs, Bobby? And he's like, no. And then they say about drinking and it's like, well, everybody drinks. You know, it's, it's not about being exact with the boundaries. It's being exact with the values of the boundaries. So it's being careful of the intention behind the fire. You know, Cooper can read this one. Um, he, he knows that Audrey being in his bed, um, you know, he, he says, this is wrong, Audrey. We both know it. and. And they both do. I mean, Audrey's crying. You know, it's like she knows, um, she knows what's going on. Um, in reality, she just wants the attention in a lot of ways. She wants the validation, and doesn't know quite how to do it. And you know, she tells them like, you know, it's like, well, I can't tell you all my secrets. Um, but, uh, and I said this a little bit earlier. I mean, she, she is about as completely honest as a person is on this show you know it's like she wants to let him in on what she's thinking about with his investigation um and how she wants to help and he's the one who puts the boundary there 
Um, but you know what that what that ends up doing, you know, because she's completely honest with him is like that's her most authentic self. And yet here, um, you know, before he goes downstairs to pick up the 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 milkshakes or whatever it is that uh, you know they're gonna snack on while they while he helps Audrey feel better, um, she asks him, "Do you have any secrets?" And then he says, "No." You know, I mean, it sounds absolutely factual to us, but I mean, it's obviously a lie. You know, maybe from himself, he's not keeping secrets, but um, I mean, he keeps secrets from a lot of people over the course of this show. So, I mean, he's um, he's he's interesting. Uh, you know, and then um, how did they get into this in the first place uh, or like? where do they go with this? Um, Audrey says, Laura had a lot of secrets. Um, so she does want to know what Laura did and what secrets Laura had. And, you know, I, I think again, it's because she kind of wants to be Laura, but, um, she wants to find out how Laura is so special. Now in this episode, Harley Payton gave Cooper a lot of great material. That's absolutely memorable. Um, the, another want is, Every day, once a day, give yourself a present. You know, that one where, um, you know, he talks to Harry and, you know, they take a moment to have a coffee. You know, it's like it take a moment to slow down. And, um, you know, so it's like it's almost like a need to satisfy a little want here and there. Um, but, I mean, in, in this case, you know, it's like he does cross the line to use the bookhouse boys instead of a proper investigation to continue the proper investigation into Jock. And, um, that's what he wants in this episode. He wants to speak to the man who's the most likely killer of Laura Palmer. Um, you know, going into the sheriff's department after talking to Audrey in the morning, you know, he, he does that little, the, the whistle, um, which, you know, I mean, sound frequency, is it invoking something? I don't know, but um, it, it was a neat little character trait at that point that um, Cooper liked to see the results of his whittling. But, you know, by the time he um, gets into the conference room where Doc Hayward and Harry are, he hears about how um, they're trying to figure out how to get Waldo to talk. It's to make him comfortable. It's to make him feel safe. Um, you know, then he'll start playing which is talking so you know they're they're gonna try to coax a uh a confession out of the bird <laughs> and um you know that's when it comes up about the poker chip being from one-eyed jacks and um hawk you know comes in and says you know it's, oh that's where Jacques works as a blackjack dealer um and uh yeah so instead of you know like okay now we have to file the paperwork to um, you know, do this the right way and cross the border safely and legally. Um, he says, okay, no, this looks like a thing for the bookhouse boys. Um, so then they go straight into disguises. You know, it's like they, um, they, they get wired, which, you know, it's a secret thing. You know, it's like people are listening through a recording. Um, but also, you know, it's like they, they go in, you know, Cooper wears the tux and the glasses, looks like Harry Grant, blah, blah, blah. Big Ed, you know, he talks about how, uh, 
you know, it's like the wig might not be, <laughs> not, the, the wig might not fit. He's got a big head, yeah. but you know, then he goes in with the curly hair and the mustache and, uh, yeah, like they, um, they go in, in disguise, you know, they have gambling money. They're going to look like that, but, um, it's a sting operation that ends up working because even though they're not going through the proper channel, they, they are doing a secret thing that ends up leading exactly to Cooper's want because at the very end, he's at a table in front of Jacques Renault. And speaking of that, you know, he does get into this outfit and he, he does work for the Bookhouse Boys and he seems absolutely unconcerned with his home life, which he is, you know, I mean, he, it, it's established that he would rather be with Norma than Nadine. Yet here he is, you know, walking into his house and, you know, he, he sees Nadine, you know, it's like he knew that the patent office didn't go well for her. And, um, you know, she's like, well, Ed, I'm eating bonbons. You know, it's like he knows that she's, you know, kind of um, eating away her grief. And, um, you know, he does comfort her and basically say, you know, just keep with it. Keep going with it. They'll, uh, you know, it'll, it'll work. And, uh, <laughs> you know, this is, this is after Chet actually shoots Montana, which is an about face from last episode's um, invitation to love. So, you know, it's like she, she sees Chet being an underdog that gives it to the oppressor and then you know here's big ed talking to her uh, you know talking nice to her and um you know then she gets a little bit honest you know confronting this dreaming that she was doing um and she says i was going to buy a whole new life you know it's like she was talking about all the things they were going to get with all this money from her silent drapes um and you know it's it's a delusional sign of an alterable reality and um that it's kind of like you know like when you're when you're stuck inside the delusion everything seems easy and fixable and it's like it's different than what's actually presented to you and um it's kind of interesting to see nadine confronted by reality and then her actually acknowledging it in this episode and we know next episode she takes that information and does the uh does the most extreme thing with it and um i don't know i mean it's it's an interesting episode for waking up you know it's like shelly the the episode before she starts off with um you know being all like hey leo i've got a gun you know it's like get away from me you know, you know she's um she's just um she thinks it's going to be easy to get rid of leo and then like she realizes that her doing the um the rushed thing didn't really work and then she freaks out because you know she's like oh he's gonna kill me you know it's i mean technically she's living in fear in a different kind of delusion because now she's like dreaming all the things bad that are gonna happen to her um but you know this is what she does when she's confronted with reality and honestly that's how audrey started the episode with um you know, it's like she's she's in Cooper's bed. You know, that's kind of you know, like what what did she think was going to happen? Well, she now knows what actually did happen, and she, you know, she took that because she always, you know, she's Audrey Horn and she gets what she wants. You know, she's used to like being active and going for things. So like instead of you know sitting back, um, 
you know, she acknowledged, you know, instead of sitting back and like, uh, eating bonbons or just like crying her eyes out, she, um, she picks herself back up and gets going with it. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, so she wants to be a fully realized human being who, um, is in control of her own self, essentially. It's just, you know, she does it so fast that it gets her into trouble. And then there's James and Donna. You know, what do they want? They want what Laura knows so that they can both honor Laura and not be held down by her. So, like, they've got it from both sides with Laura's ghost. And um, they, um, they essentially decide here that in order to get what they want, they kind of have to invoke Laura herself to do it now every investigation in this episode reveals a side of laura um audrey's investigation explores who laura was you know like where she worked what kind of job she held um cooper's investigation explores laura's final hours um you know the when and how she was killed and um then James, Donna, and Maddie's investigation reveals the person Laura was underneath while she did all these things that the other investigations are figuring out. It's interesting how the kids' investigation gets to the closest of who Laura actually was. Um, and it's all done by, by basically making the unspeaking speak. Um, you know, there, there's... There's audio recordings in this episode. Uh, the, they're and they're both recorded by Cheryl Lee. There's um, there's Laura's therapy tape, and then there's Waldo the bird. Um, you know the um, the audio tape that um, that Laura got back from Jacoby. You know, it's like it's it's basically the ghost of Laura speaking after the fact. Um, you know, part of it she's talking about. I feel like I'm in a dream tonight, and. Um, you know, big bad ones that he likes and she knows that he likes her too and that she'll keep that a secret. So it's like, it's this big confessional thing. And um, it it echoes the Audrey story, you know, Audrey being basically the main character of the episode. You know, it's like, um, Laura says, why is it so easy to make men like me? And um, Audrey also wants to know why it's so easy. But um, in this case, we get like the... Um, the unofficial context of what makes it so troublesome. And then there's, um, there's another ghost speaking after it had died and the words of Waldo, you know, the, um, the recording, the way, the way they showed how, um, Waldo spoke, you know, it's like, there's, um, it's, um, you know, he, he speaks beyond the grave, but it, it begins. Okay. So the episode, as far as Waldo's concerned, um, there's another transmission. It's a radio signal. It's um, it's the police band that um, Leo Johnson was listening to. Um, you know, Lucy's on the police band talking about, you know, the bird. You know, she wants the bird to talk because it might have seen something. And um, it basically saves Bobby Briggs right there, but it absolutely seals the deal on Waldo. Um, so, um, and... Leo, um, he's definitely, um, 
equated with the darkness here. I mean, you know, one, we see him trying to kill people. Shelley says he sounded like an animal, which is words exactly used by Sarah talking about Bob. Um, and, um, you know, it's like all this stuff leads to Waldo being killed. But then, you know, Cooper's, um, Cooper's micro cassette recorder, um, you know, like we, we actually get to hear after the fact, just like James, Laura, I mean, yeah, James, Donna and Maddie are hearing Laura's words after the fact, you know, they, they get to the, the police guys get to listen to, um, Waldo say, Leo, no hurting me. Um, so yeah. And you know, the, the guy who, um, who sounds like an animal, um, who decides to kill a bird who might implicate him absolutely was, uh, implicated. And it puts Leo at the scene of the crime. Now, Laura isn't just invoked this time through recordings. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is one where James and Donna and Maddie all absolutely take it to a whole new level. I mean, it's, it's more theatrical, obviously, but like, Maddie becomes Laura, which is, you know, the, the Cheryl Lee connection, like the, um, the Maddie has been set up almost like a vessel for Laura, like, you know, the, the connections they have already, um, make it easy for her to become Laura. And in a lot of ways, you know, like becoming Laura is almost like, it's almost like a crime noir, uh, twist on the whole Orpheus thing. You know, it's like they go in to where Laura is and bring her back into the world almost. Um, you know, it's it's not exactly Orpheus going all the way into the underworld to get his wife back, but I mean it's not it's not entirely dissimilar. You know, it's like they go in to bring Laura back so that we can find out how she was killed. And Maddie really embodies Laura. You know, it's like, first of all, she dresses the part, which, you know, she can do because she's got Laura's closet. Um, and then, you know, she raises the pitch of her voice up here, like where, where Laura usually speaks. And um, it's interesting for her in particular to do that because she's kind of doing the Audrey thing where, you know, she's going into this, this persona that is way darker than she is. Um Cheryl Lee in Essential Wrapped in Plastic by John Thorne, um, she says, <clears throat> excuse me, she says, Maddie didn't walk on the dark side like Laura did. She was completely naive of any sort of world like Laura's. And yet here she is calling Jacoby from a payphone saying, you know, it's like, I feel like I'm in a dream tonight or, you know, what's up, doc? Um, it, it's like this huge elaborate ruse, this, um, they're almost like crafting a dream for Jacoby to fall into. And it, it, in a lot of ways does bring Laura back to life. And, um, you know, they're, they're doing it to reclaim more of her words and more of her truth. But, you know, it's like they're, they're, they're invoking the dead to reclaim more of the dead. And, um, I, I mean, except, that you can't really do that and it doesn't work because in the video that they've given to Jacoby, um, they, their, their ruse can't work because, you know, the part of the film, you know, it's like he pauses it at a particular moment and sees the gazebo and he says gazebo. So like, we know 
that Jacoby knows something can be investigated and he goes ahead and does it. And honestly, it's all of a piece. I mean, because, um, you know, at the end of the episode, James and Donna, what do they want? They want to get Laura's other tapes. So, you know, they've broken and entered and they are they are right at the edge of finding that tape. But, you know, it's like, what does their rushing do? It ends up leaving Maddie at Donna's station wagon, you know, because uh, Donna drove. <laughs> so, you know, like you can't, uh, Maddie can't um, use Donna's car for whatever reason. And, you know, she's stuck there with somebody, you know, breathing heavy. Like, you know, she's in danger. Um, Jacoby, you know, it's like he's he left in a hurry. And he's in danger because, you know, next episode, he's going to get clobbered into a heart attack. Um, you know, Audrey and Cooper going to One-Eyed Jacks, um, that's already associated with the Red Room in uh, Lynch's episode, uh, the, the, the one with the dream sequence. You know, it's like it's, it's, um, it's going into the heart of the beast in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, Laura's invoked by Maddie. They uh, talked about that part. Um, you know, it's like all this all this accessing other realms and, you know, Jacoby's office even fits into this because it's an illegal entry. Um, it's, it's accessing these realms that you're not really supposed to go to, to achieve goals and everybody's doing it, but everybody's rushing and cutting corners. And yeah, I mean, the <laughs> Margaret would say the fish aren't running and, um, you know, it's like everybody gets into various troubles as a result of their their um lack of patience all the trouble that we'll see it begins in next episode which means right now it's time for the sign-off you have been listening to the blue rose task force podcast a production of ruminations radio network and tv obsessive radio if you resonate with what you're hearing please subscribe rate and review our show and we would love to be connected with you on twitter at blue rose tf pod and on instagram and facebook at blue rose task force you can find me at jpb underscore little green on twitter and john underscore the underscore peaky on instagram Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Ruminations from the Red Room and Cinephile Hissy Fits. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at TVObsessive.com. And if you want to be part of our monthly mailbag Patreon episodes, send any comments and questions or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week as we cover episode seven, the eighth overall episode of Twin Peaks. And until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams.
Oh, oh.